Hello and welcome to the Oxford Sidebar Podcast for March 2012. This month our speaker was Dr. Katie Warnaby, who spoke about pain and whether or not it was all in the brain. We hope you enjoy. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Brown. I'm the treasurer of the, of the group. And this evening we've got a talk by Dr. Katie Warnaby talking about pain. Hopefully it won't be painful. I'm told it's all in our imagination. <laughs> all right, thank you very much. Let me just attach that so I can put that first. Okay, as John said, I'm going to talk to you about pain today. So my background is a little bit unusual, so I'm not a medic, and I just want to make that clear to start off with. I actually, my initial... Can everyone hear me? Is it right? Right, so my initial training is in physics. I used to make laser systems to inflict pain, and I've been working in pain imaging for a while now. About, I've been working in pain for about 10 years. But so I'd like to thank everyone for coming. Nice to see a few familiar faces. Um, so I'm going to start with a story about. Um, it was told to me years ago by a consultant rheumatologist I worked with at Manchester. And it actually ended up, it was published in the BMD. There was about this builder, a young builder, who came into A&E and he was screaming in pain, absolutely in agony. So he was screaming in pain, he was in agony. And um, so it turned out he'd been working on a building site and he'd stepped down onto a, a nine-inch nail and it was coming out through his, through his boot. So he was given some analgesia and he was sedated. And then they took his boot off to reveal that actually it hadn't even touched his foot and it had gone right in between his two toes. <laughs> so my first question is, was this man in pain, yes or no? So he had, he had all the physiological symptoms that associate with pain. He associated with pain, he had increased heart rate, but he had no physical injury, there was no tissue damage. So is pain just a perception? So I don't know it as well whether you lot have seen the uh, Steve Larson trilogy, the girl with the dragon tattoo, and in there there's a guy who doesn't feel pain at all. And this isn't just stuff in fiction, this actually happens in real life, and it's called congenital analgesia. And it's where people have a distinct inability to feel pain, or they're completely insensitive. So there's a case history in the 1960s of a girl called Miss C, who's Canadian, um, and she, her father was a, a doctor, so she got a lot of tests. But he noticed early on that she had a when she bit off the end of her tongue and tried to eat, that she had this inability to see pain. And quite often, or at least in the old days, these people didn't really survive out of childhood at all. And they often suffer painless fractures and also severe burns. But then pain can also, we can also have episodic analgesia. So uh, on the battlefield, Oh, I think that's working. <laughs> On the battlefield, or even the football field, for my football mates over here, um, you can sometimes uh, take on an injury and not perceive the pain until later on. So there's a fight or flight mechanism that goes on there. So you uh, move out and get to a place of safety and then you feel pain. So these soldiers often then do feel pain and they take on the normal analgesic requirements later on, but at the time, you don't perceive pain. So I think these these examples really show that pain is quite a challenge, it's quite a puzzle, and uh, it's difficult to define. But because of scientists, we must try. So um, the International Association for the Study of Pain defines pain as an unpleasant sensory relation experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage described in terms of such damage. So this definition is carefully crafted, so we get at this sort of both this, this variable link between injury and pain. But also, it highlights that pain isn't just a sensory experience, it's also emotional. And what we're realising more and more is that pain is so complex and it's a really multi-dimensional experience. So we know that pain can be affected by our mood. So if you're more anxious, you're more depressed, you'll feel more pain. We know that your cognitive set might change, so if you attend to the pain, you're distracted from the pain, the experience will be different. You know the context in which you experience it, what you expect to feel with the pain, and also your beliefs about what the pain means, do so change. And then also chemical and structural and hormonal difference, differences that can change your perception. 
So there are different sorts of pain. We can have acute pain, so we can have transient pain. So if you put your hand on a hot plate, you immediately feel the painful response. So that's quite transient. It goes away as soon as you disengage. So it acts as a warning signal. It stops you from causing further damage. If you damage your ankle, you then experience pain. So it's protective. It stops you from causing more damage. But then chronic pain, which I ask the clients of pain normally in three months, what purpose does that serve? In some cases, it's going to become pain in its own life. So, so there's stats from the British Pain Society about pain, or about 20% of the adult population suffer from pain. And 10 million people suffer daily. So that's a huge impact on quality of life and their experience of life. But it also has a huge social and economic cost. So the TUC, that's an estimate that 5 million days are lost to work just due to that pain. And on average, each employee will uh, take about nine, 19 days of work a week. The financial cost is huge as well. Obviously, we've got the cost of location. So, and that's becoming increasingly expensive at this time. Um, and so it was estimated the cost to each checker by the British Pain Society was £5 billion per annum, again just due to back pain. That's a huge cost that we're paying out. And 3 million people were on the But this also is a big escalation, really, because if you think about the carers who look after these individuals, then also retirement, people will retire early due to ill health. So pain is a huge problem and one we should be able to address, which is one of the reasons why I do what I do. So let's think of maybe if we take the simplest case, which is like an acute pain stimulus, and we think about how that's transmitted to the brain. Alright, if I inflict, inflict pain on the back of your hand, uh, it's detected by specialist nerve endings called nose receptors, and they respond to a number of different stimuli. So they can respond to hot and cold, so respond to thermal sensations, but they can also respond to crushing, so if you hit yourself on a hand with a hammer, that would be a crushing, most susceptible activated. But you can also, they also respond to chemical influences. So you've all eaten a hot curry and had that experience and you get pain. And that's because the active ingredient in the chili peppers is called capsaicin. And we use it experimentally both to apply it topically to the skin and then also to inject it under the skin, which is one of the most painful experiences you can um, So once these nose receptors are activated, it then, they're the endings of these nerve fibers that transmit from the periphery, so your body is made up mainly of your central nervous system and your peripheral nervous system. So your central nervous system consists of your brain and your spinal cord. So these signals are transferred from the periphery to, depending on which sections, to various sections in the spinal cord. And then these are transmitted up to the brain, and they come into the brainstem, and then they transmit to higher cortical structures. And at various points along the way, you can get modulation of that signal. And then also, your brain, depending on the situation you're in, for example, in the battlefield in a fight or flight situation, can send the sending influences down that control that aspect of the And there are two different types of nerve fiber that transmit this information. So you have what's known as a delta and a C fiber. So an A delta is a fast signal. So it travels about 20 meters per second. And it will transmit, so that transmits the first pain response, which is maybe the protective one that makes you take <laughs> Then there's another nerve fiber that comes in, as a C fiber, that then transmits a slower signal, which is about one meter second, so about 20 times slower. And that maybe has been linked to be more the effective side that transmits the second pain signal, that maybe is more effective and says, you know, how bad is this? So you can kind of burn that reactive sensation. Um, once we have acute pain stimulus, we have to then think about how we measure pain. So I'm sure a lot of you have experienced pain in your life, I think probably most of you have. Um, but one of the easiest ways to ask you is, do you have, is your pain mild, moderate or severe? So that's attaching the verbal description. The other way you could do it is by saying, give me a rating. So give me, if I give you a scale from zero to ten, give me a number. <laughs> where zero is no pain and ten is the worst pain. 
So these are scales that are used, but these are really coarse and they're incredibly subjective. And they also depend on how you use that scale. So there's sometimes a bias inherent in these scales. So one of the things that we're doing here in Oxford, and it's becoming quite commonplace across the world now, is by trying to find more objective markers of pain. So using functional engine techniques to look at objective ways of measuring pain. So we're not just relying on the subjective pain report to develop new drugs or new treatments. So one of the techniques that I've used in the past is EEG, or electrolytherapy, which is where you put electrodes on the surface of the scalp. And, um, you measure the, the, the electrical activity that's going on in the brain. And this is going on all the time. But what you can then do is look at what activity is related to the painful stimulus itself. So you can time lock it to when that activity is when the painful stimulus And if you do that, and if I use my tool of choice, which would be the lever, you would see a response in the brain about a quarter of a second later. And it would be a small deflection in the electrical activity that is a millimeter volt. And you detect it all across the surface, but it would be maximal around here. And one of the things we know as well is that the amplitude of those signals changes with both the perception and also the intensity of the stimulus that we get. So one of the other techniques I've been using whilst I'm here in Oxford is uh, functional magnetic resonance images. So I'm sure a lot of you have heard of MRI scans, which is where you take high resolution structural pictures of the brain or a certain part of the body. And what you can do is by inferring um, information about the blood and how it's transported in metabolism, you can say which bits of the brain light up in response to the And one of the great things about functional imaging through magnetic resonance is that you can get really good spatial location so you can pick exactly which bits of the brain you like that. The good thing about EEG is you can locate things really quickly. You can see how fast, it's a really fast response. One of the things we've been trying to do is use SMR to look at the effect of energy to see which parts of the brain they act on. And then also looking at those factors that I've said before that modulate the pain experience and we can try and tease out which bits of the brain these work on. So if I just give you some examples maybe of some of the studies that have been done here in the last few, um, few years. So there was one uh, that was done by a colleague of mine, Ori Pringle, which was looking at the expectation of pain, positive mental. So what she did was she brought people into the scanner, she gave them a painful stimulus. And she, so at the start of the session, she said, well, I'm going to match it to your subjective perception of seven hours. So it's quite an intense pain to stimulus. And then she also told the subjects that I'm going to give you an infusion of uh, an opioid. So it's a short lasting pain pain. Um, so that's the intravenous insulin. And so the scanning's going on throughout all of this. But you deliver people pain, painful stimulus, and you can see the average response. So they get seven hours in at the beginning. And then what she did was she turned the drug on, but she didn't tell them that she was turning it on. And when she did that, you saw a drop in their pain rating, the average pain rating, and that was due to the pharmacological effect of the drug. But then she actually told them she was going to turn it on, and she saw a further drop in the activity in, in the pain in the pain response, the rate of the And that was because of their positive expectations about how that drug was going to work. So she continued the infusion, but then she also gave them the information that actually sometimes when I turn this drug off, people feel the pain to be more intense. So she then told them she was going to turn it off. And then when she did that, the pain level went back to the baseline level. So she'd overridden their positive expectations about what the drug would do. She'd overridden the pharmacological factors that and it came back to the level, even though the drug was So this really shows that how the positive and negative expectations of pain can influence how we perceive it. So another one that was done by Peter Beek is looking at how religious beliefs, so he talks about pain beliefs before, and how they can affect pain. So what she did was she put people in the scanner, and they were Catholics, and she also had a and she showed them pictures of Virgin Mary 
And then she also showed them pictures of a similar period painting of a woman. So uh, what she thought was that take more pain when they saw the Virgin Mary. <laughs> and it was act actually the opposite for the atheists. In fact, they saw they, <laughs> they had an analgesic effect to the other woman. And the other woman. <laughs> so we can really see how beliefs can change. So one of the things I've been looking at well, we're all using imaging techniques as well, but it's quite difficult to show you pictures of the brain in this environment. But um, I was looking at how anxiety can change people's perception. Um, so what I did was I measured lots of people on several occasions, and I gave them three levels of laser stimulation. And I was looking at how they use the rating scales, basically. And if you fit, so we expect there to be an increase in pain as you increase the energy. So if you increase that energy and you can put a slope, a linear slope on, on how they perceive it. And what I found was the more anxious people were, the more they moved through that rating But also they perceived pain at an earlier point. So the intersect on that white axis was lower. So again, anxiety really links in to how you This has been linked to, you know, there are various um, chronic people suffering from chronic pain, particularly MS, often feel benefit from using cannabis. And so uh, subjects were given an oral uh, cannabinoid, and it, the effect of cannabis was looked at. So one of the things that he found was you can rate pain in different forms at how intense it is, but you can also look at how unpleasant it is. And one of the things that he found is usually these two things track each other completely. But actually when the cannabis was involved, there was a separation, a dissociation between these two aspects. And people experienced the same amount of pain, but they found it to be less pleasant. So these are different ways in which we can modulate the pain experience. So one of the things I've been looking at more recently is chronic pain. And uh, chronic pain, as I said before, by Arax is defined as um, pain long-term and it can come from a variety of causes. So, um, surgery is one. You can sometimes not be able to surgery. But also, uh, injury through car accidents. One of the common ones is um, a car crash, and you have uh, a seatbelt on, and the seatbelt can cause problems with the shoulder, muscles in the shoulder. But also, disease such as diabetes can cause pain, and can cause sort of pathology in the nerve fibers, particularly in the at the end of the So this type of pain is called neuropathic pain. And it's one of the ones I'm going to be talking about a bit more in a, in a moment. But you also get some conditions where you can't find any pathology. So there's no disease, there's no reason for this pain to be um, And in that, in that situation, pain then becomes a disease to end life and not just a disease. And they're very difficult to treat and often linked to more psychological issues. So I brought some of my tools to talk to. So these are some of the stimuli that we use to assess neuropathic pain. So neuropathic pain is often it's caused by a lesion, and this can either be in the periphery, so it can, when we say a lesion, this is a damage to the nerve. Right, and that can be in the periphery or it can be sensory. So quite often people get neuropathic pain after stroke, for example, which is where you get um, a lesion in the brain. Um, so one of the things that we do is we try and assess the nerve fiber integrity. Um, and these are some of the things we So this is, you can pass these around and have a look. So this would be uh, for measuring pressure pain. Uh, and this is assessing not just cutaneous nerves, but the ones that are deeper into the tissue. So the more visceral nerves, if you do it around here, is that done? So what you would do is you just increase it very slowly. And this is a, a threshold, so you you'd increase it to the point where it's like crystal. So um, 
thing that you get with um, neuropathic pain is that you get increased response to painful stimuli, so it's called hyperalgesia. And so things we sort of can be careful with this because these are quite expensive and classic now. Anyway. So, um, this is what we call uh, a pump tape probe. And this is the sort of those mechanical or the, the nose sensors that respond to crush. Um, so what we can do, we have different weights. So there are different weights. Uh, I actually bought the strongest. <laughs> and we, we do this to assess where a patient would say, at the start when they're quite uh, weak in weight, they'd be called blunt. And they get to this point and they're sharp. And we use that to assess the point where they, their threshold is where they change from the same blunt to sharp. So one of the really interesting things, the really horrible things about neuropathic pain is when um, normally innocuous stimuli like brushes and cotton wisps then turn into painful sensations. And so that can be just even your clothes rubbing. Um, and this quite often happens when you've had surgery in that you've had an incision in the skin and you might get it around the scar. Um, I tested a lady the other day who had a condition called complex regional pain syndrome and she had um, very severe pain. She was writing her pain. Uh, her average pain in the last four weeks was at, uh, a 10. Um, and she was actually going for surgery to try and alleviate it. But when I applied these, so she had pain all down on her back and when I've also got some other stimuli that just assessed touch. So in her affected area, she couldn't perceive touch at all. With these, she, when you went through the range of the punctate probes, she could, she could, she'd only pursue at the bottom end, she wouldn't perceive them at all, and then they became sharp, so there was a, a pressure where she converted. These, she was writing out as A at the and then moved across the skin. So and that's what's called allodinium. So it's where an innocuous stimulus then becomes painful. And that's still one of the things that we're, we're trying to understand why that happens. So one of the things that we found with imaging and when we're looking at imaging for chronic pain patients is that we know that there are there are changes that are set up. So there are these central changes in the brainstem um, that mean that this descending inhibition and sending these signals down to sort of dampen the pain response doesn't work as well anymore. And these are potentially the new targets for new drugs. Also, one of the things that's been observed is that um, you can actually have structural changes in the brain. So there is a decrease in some of the grey matter in the frontal cortices, and this is maybe because the processing of the painful stimuli and processing in the brain in general becomes a little bit altered. So one of the things that I've been working on for the last three years is a project called Oxbox, which is Oxford's Persisting Post-Optive Pain Study. And this is looking at pain specifically after surgery. And we've been looking at inguinal hernia repair, caesarean section, and also breast cancer. So we know that about 20% of people attending pain clinics have pain-related previous surgery. So it's a big problem. But one of the interesting things about it is that the instance is not always um, in line with the, the damage that can be done to nerve injury. So for example, amputation, about 80% of people develop long-term pain after amputation. One in two women, 80% long-term pain after amputation. And also you get uh, anti-limbs and other uh, different aspects. It's a very complex one, amputation. But then one in two people will suffer long-term pain after breast cancer surgery. And cesarean uh, section is down, there's only one study, which we're going to do the next one, but that's only down to 6%. So you have to ask yourself, um, why is the incident so different? Maybe in the case of breast cancer and amputation, you're losing something, whereas in the case of cesarean section, you're gaining something. So maybe the psychology there plays a role in terms of its outcome as well. So one of the things that we know is that all these different um, factors come into pain perception. So what we're trying to do is take a more holistic aspect to looking at pain after surgery. Because what tends to happen is the anaesthetist will look at what drugs were given 
during the surgery. The surgeons will look at what technique they use. The psychologists will look at anxiety. But nobody really brings it all together to say which ones are the real predictive factors. So that's what we're trying to do. So we give them a big, massive, curative questionnaire beforehand. And, uh, and then we'll assess their anxiety levels, their depression levels. We'll look at how optimistic they are. Some, one paper has shown that the more pessimistic you are, the more likely you are to get a better outcome from surgery. We also look at their expectations, how much pain do they expect to be in active surgery. One of the things that uh, we're realising what well, we found in the early days of cesareans is that it does seem to correlate that people who expect to feel more pain will feel more pain in the acute pain period. But what we're trying to do is we also look at what their most painful event ever they experienced was. So what we're trying to do is scale their perception according to that. So we want to scale <coughs> because it may just be a scaling issue and they just use the range of scale So on the day of surgery, we get the anaesthetist to fill in a form, we get the surgeons to fill in a form. And then we look at them at day two, day seven, and day 30. And we look then at their acute post-op pain. But we also look at their sleep. And we do that preoperatively as well, because we know that there's a link between sleep and pain. So of the people attending pain clinics, about 50% of those also have sleep disturbance. And we don't know which direction it's in. So it may be that um, the pain is interrupting your sleep, or it may be that all to sleep can induce pain. And both have been shown actually so far. Um, and then we'll follow them up to, for up to a year to look at what the incident is and then we try and predict what factors and which ones are really important in them developing so, and why they go from this acute and what is healthy post-operative pain to long-term care and uh, potentially not useful post-operative pain long-term. So I suppose I'm going to close on what can we currently do to stop chronic pain. Um, in terms of analgesia, we've had no new analgesia in the last 20 years. Um, this is potentially due to the fact that we're always competing against placebo, and placebo is incredibly powerful. Any drug is always compared to placebo. So to get um, drugs to the end, the last year drug development is very expensive, but to get them to the end, um, the drug companies aren't willing to, to gamble, to make that gamble on whether it will work or not. And also some of the ones that we don't have really have poor accuracy, so they don't really work that well. And one of the issues long term with people who suffer from chronic pain is addiction. So particularly for opioids, there's a there is an addiction and a tolerance that is built up. So there's been an increase in pain management programs which try and assess all aspects and bring it all together. So both produce, you know, look at how which types of analgesia uh, are useful in certain individuals because not all analgesia works for everybody. But they're also now trying to look at the more cognitive aspects and doing cognitive behavioural therapy and try and look at pain behaviours and maybe interaction with parents because pain is sometimes due to outside influence and not necessarily the pain. So, one of the, the things I'm going to be moving on to is looking at how surgery um, can be used to resolve. So that lady um, is actually, well, she was we were doing an assessment of her preoperatively because she was going to have a spinal cord stimulating implanted. So because she had leg pain, that would be implanted around here. And that sends electrical signals to confuse the signals coming in. So it's like an active conversation. And we're not just doing that in the spinal cord now, but we're also doing that in the brain, constructive of the brain. Um, and this has been shown to be quite effective in individuals, but obviously for me I think it's an anti-chance result that they should have taken every opportunity to make sure that they've had exposure to every other Any questions? Okay, so the uh, question was about mindfulness. Um, 
and there's, I think the reason you have found it difficult to find information is because there probably isn't that much out there at the moment. A lot of alternative therapies um, are being used in the community but have not necessarily been researched as much as we would like. Uh, but these, these mindfulness and techniques like that are being used in pain management programs quite a lot. So the question was about um, pain and men and women. Do women have a higher pain threshold than men? Or do we make ourselves something like that? Um, so we do find that uh, chronic pain is predominantly suffered by women. Um, so a recent systematic review that takes all the literature and looked at, and looked at the gender differences between men and women showed that actually across the board there probably isn't that much of a difference. But if you take um, the sort of test that we do, uh, and this is a normative database of how people are seeing the and heat pain program, we do find that men tend to have increased thresholds. Um, but also, there's some interesting work on that um, which is looking at the role of hormones. And it may be that hormones play uh, a part of the in pain protection. And that particularly if you have heart testosterone in a woman, you might have a much higher We did a test as well so that the menstrual cycle wasn't going to make a difference. Christmas, so, so that was being brought up before as well. And I suppose that's one of the things that in the past drugs are often Um, why, why did she 
and why didn't you feel pain? So um, I suppose that this was 1960 when that case study was around, and at the time they did all this typical sensory testing on it, and that most systems were perfectly normal, but you must have been okay. I think more recently, I mean it's obviously a very rare condition, more recently I think there was a, a family or a, a family in a village in Norway, Sweden is it Sweden? <laughs> my Swedish friend over here. Um, but um, who, uh, when tested, they were shown to have a genetic mutation, um, which, and it was in the channels, so the nose sets themselves in the left of the channel. So, that was, so since then, more work has been done, and it does seem to be peripheral, but it'd be really interesting to scan the brain. So, the brain scans haven't been
So like your blood pressure, your heart rate, there are lots of responses that are complicated. So crying could be one of them, but I've not been a good Okay, so um, the comment was about uh, phantom limb pain and how um, in some situations people use mirrors and imagery to uh, reduce the pain potential. So with phantom limb pain, you get lots of different sorts of pain. You, you, um, you can get pain, so this is usually related to amputation, you can get pain in the stump, you can get pain from a phantom, and quite often in the phantom, the, uh, the fingers are tightly clenched. And by using mirrors to maybe look at um, the other hand, so this is my bad hand, I can look at reflection of my good hand, you can then try and check, trick the body really into thinking about it volume again. So that was, so Maeve was asking whether So if you work on that principle and then use visual aids, then can you change people's pain intensity? So there's a study done quite a while ago now, I think, where they gave people a, um, a visual interpretation of what the pain they were perceiving in their class. And um, what they did was then uh, use their brain to turn that down. So what is by using that visual representation, representation and changing the height of it, they also want to activity within the brain. So there's certainly brain regions that we know respond pretty lively to pain. The activation is also just pretty decreased by the variation of that visual. Were they visualising a dial? Yeah, so it was like, it was like I think from, from memory, it was like, it was like a little flame and then the height of the flame. Um, they could use that as an interpretation by looking at that. They would also do the interpretation of certain things. What about lifestyle? Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, So whenever we do pain testing, there are always two routes that people can take. They can always habituate to the painful symptoms, or they can take the problem. And so maybe if you're exposed you know, to a daily job, for example, chefs in the kitchen, you might habituate over a quarter time to the Lifestyle and um, caffeine have been shown to be quite linked to pain perception. Um, high caffeine uses technically pain perception. Um, so yes, I thought I can play, which is another aspect of pain management pain, because they look at, you know, the way you live your life. Um, Maybe it's a bit of wacky, but this just occurs to me, yeah, yeah. Um, talks about, right, so I believe this, um, pain is in the process in the zone of the sensory cortex. So, has anyone ever done a transcranial magnetic stimulus, stimulation um, research, see if, it, if it can, that it can be switched up and then look at the effects of the Yeah, so um, the question was about transcranial magnetic stimulation, which uh, is a what we would call a brain interference. So you basically zap somebody with a big magnetic field on their brain. And the question was particularly about um, somatosensory areas and if you use that blues, does it change pain? So yes, the answer is if you use TMS, um, you, you can alter people's perception. They don't tend to do it on um, S1, somatosensory one, but might use it on more prefrontal areas. But that research is very much ongoing. Thank you.
Okay, so the question was, how close are we to getting an objective measure of things? And um, this is something I've been trying to look at for a few minutes. So one of my projects was to look at EEG and compare it with fMRI and try and see which one was more sensitive to these changes in paper section. Um, one of the things I think we're still slightly limited by is the models that we apply to the data. I think that quite often we expect the brain to respond in a linear fashion, and it doesn't. So I think we, we need to try and work more on the analysis techniques that we're using. But um, I think you know there's a, there's a lot of evidence, particularly coming out of our group, that you can take different drugs and you can predict. So you know, drugs that work in certain situations, and you can predict which drug it is blinded by looking at the imaging. And so there's a lot of evidence that fMRI is more sensitive um, than usually pain reports. But um, what I think concerns me is the subjective report is always very important. And, uh, and there's been talk about using these images or um, for brain reading, so working out in, in the cases of uh, you know, work out and disease and whether this person is actually in power, I think that's a pretty dangerous route to move to care for. That was a really, really interesting talk. Thanks very much. I just want to ask you four more questions. For example, why do different people respond differently to the same drug, for example? Some people might find paracetamol works for a headache. Other people find it doesn't work at all, and they would have to use ibuprofen or something. Have you any idea why people with the same condition find different drugs work for them better? Um, so, obviously, my training isn't in medicine, but from... Um, what we do know is that you know people respond to pain differently, but also these different types of medication act, um, are focusing on different types of pain receptors. And it may be sometimes that people aren't taking the right medication for the right cause of the pain, but also that some drugs just aren't effective in some individuals. And I don't think that um, there's been enough research into that as yet. No. Okay, that's interesting. Right. Um, I was also interested about pain perception in people who have lost one of their five senses. For example, you know, if you lose your hearing or if you lose your sight or something, would that affect your sense of touch in the sense that your pain perception would change? Do you find that blind people have better or worse experience of pain? For example, they wouldn't have the visual stimulus of a pain that's going to come. Do you know if there's any been studies? done on that? I must admit, I don't really know the literature on that one, but we do know that when um, you lose certain senses, the other senses might become more pronounced, so particularly for touch. That, so yes, you may get the same influence and the same enhancement of your pain sensitivity, but um, as far as I'm, I'm not really aware of the literature on this one. And this is, just finally, I was just wondering, do you have any ideas about what would happen in the very long term when it comes to pain control? Are there any completely wacky ideas that you think might one day become real life and would help in this, in this very important So I suppose that some people might consider spinal cord stimulation and deep brain stimulation where you actually have an electrical stimulator implanted that sends signals and modulates the pain input coming from your periphery. So some people might already consider that wacky. I think it is um, it's quite unusual and it's quite an extreme route to take. Um, but then people are prepared to have those for things like Parkinson's and now they're absolutely. using it for depression and they find that the relief 
is a small, you know, is so great that it's a very small price to pay. Yes, completely. And um, they have been shown to be so effective in Parkinson's. And also in the same um, vein, that it is something that has really been shown to be effective. But I think that the um, at the moment the effectiveness may wear off, and we need to understand more why that happened. But also how these stimulators are actually working and what influence they're having on the brain. And so how they're stopping the signals. So we don't even know that yet. I we know it works, but we actually don't know the mechanism. Well, because we still don't really understand entirely how the brain perceives pain, we know that various areas are modulated by pain, and we know that uh, the brain will respond to these um, these regions in the brain respond when you have a painful stimulus. But quite a lot of these areas are common to lots of different stimuli. Yeah. And we're, we're yet really to pinpoint the one region that says this is pain perception. And so one of the studies that was done recently in that group was looking at pain versus imagined pain. And if you uh, get somebody to experience a pain stimulus and then leave it a while longer and then they imagine the same pain stimulus, and if you do a subtraction on the brain images between those two stimuli, you find that there's an area in the posterior insula that is active, and that is the only area that is active between the two cha- between the two images. So there are potential. We know which targets are maybe there, but at the moment with deep brain stimulation, we're targeting the thalamus, which is the relay to all centres of the brain for pain input, uh, and then also some other structures within the brain but one of the things that offers us is that we can record and stimulate from these typically you have two electrodes implanted and you can record and stimulate so you can get some idea of how these two brain regions talk to each other wow that is really fascinating it looks like there's lots of areas or lots of channels that we can follow to hopefully come to some sort of proper pain relief. Definitely, let's hope so. Yeah, let's hope so. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much again. It was a really, really interesting talk. I know everyone enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association, Oxfordshire Branch.